Well, a big welcome to our live audience for Digital Health Investor Talk. I'm your host, Stephen Wardell. I'm the managing partner of Wardell Advisors, a digital health advisory firm, and the author of The Future of Digital Health. Wardell Advisors is helping digital health companies address issues around growth, fundraising, and strategic alternatives. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Stephen Wardell. Our guest today is longtime digital health venture capitalist, Andy Geist, who is the founder and managing director of Health Tech Capital, an early-stage venture fund, and MedStar, an advisory firm for startups and large corporations. Today's topic is building a scalable health tech company, lessons learned on scalability and profitability in healthcare. This show is being recorded as a podcast. This is not investment advice, and we are not investment advisors. First off, here's the format for this investor talk. We'll talk for about the industry for about 20 minutes. Then, for the next 40 minutes, we'll do a deep dive with Anne on her topics. After that, we'll be taking call-ins from our audience. In order to do more than just listen, you need to register an account with Callin. To register, you can access Callin at callin.com or through the Callin social podcasting app in your app store. The Callin platform works similarly to Clubhouse Rooms and Twitter Spaces for a modern social audio experience. Once you've registered, you can use the text chat and you can also press the call-in button to indicate you'd like to speak up and join the discussion. So, welcome, Anne. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. And I know you're in New York and enjoying the, the big city there. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, so, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience and tell us about what you do? Yeah, thank you. Uh, my name is Anne de Geest, and I run two companies. Uh, one is uh, MedStars, which is an advisory uh, company there where I work uh, mentoring early stage company where there's only a couple of entrepreneurs all the way to very large strategic uh, companies. Um, in, uh, I started MedStars in 1986 and I coined the word health tech at the time to differentiate from medtech. We'll talk a little bit later about the differences between the two, the two uh, sectors there. So uh, d during the last 30 years, uh, I was lucky to start some of the earliest uh, pioneer, really health tech company in the space, had eight IPOs and $18 billion in market cap. And one of my frustration, it was so difficult to get funding uh, for companies that had unproven market there. So in 2010, I started a group called Health Tech Capital to really help fund early stage health tech companies there. Uh, we have uh, invested and have over 50 active portfolio company. Uh, and we have different business models from uh, who is paying, which could be the payers, the providers, the patients, the pharma, and the employers. Our members, 20% uh, are physicians, so we have a deep understanding of the clinical pathways and, and, and the mechanism of actions. We also have uh, technology investors and VCs and corporate VC, including Mitsubishi, Merckx, and Philips University of Vermont. 32% of, of our members are female. And as a result of that, we are agnostics. And somebody asked me what was my demographic of the CEOs. And I looked after the fact that 28% of our CEOs are female. That was not intentional. We just picked the best. So uh, so that's kind of the really high level of what I'm doing now. That's great. And can you also tell us more about how you got your start in your career, your background? Yeah, you may wonder by now what the accent is coming from. So it's a little bit of a French twist. Uh, coming, I was born in Belgium. I got a master in, in engineering there, went to Harvard, learned English at Harvard Business School uh, when I got my MBA there. And then I joined a, a startup called Nelcor, and I launched post Worldwide. 
And that's when I really understood the difference between medtech and health tech. So after they went public, I started my MedStars and, and I really was focusing on creating new categories. What I learned is that you can build barriers of entry, not with IP, but with business models, if you create brand new markets that don't that don't exist. And that takes a bit of courage there because nobody can validate. So so fundraising was interesting. So it came out of that, uh, several companies uh, uh, in anesthesia monitoring, I was involved with Aspect Medical and Medicines that just got FDA approval uh, for um, nociceptions. And of course, Nelcor and Massimo, so I was deep into that space. Uh, and also the first uh, drug dispensing cabinets, both with Pixis and Omnicells, that became a category that didn't exist before of multi-billion dollars there. And the very big granddaddy of the space in digital health is a company called VisiQ. Um, and, and they basically did the first telehealth from the intensive care units. And they showed that if you could monitor 24 by 7, like the air traffic controllers, you could really identify patients that were degrading their intervene and decrease mortality by 25% by using all this technology there. And, and so they also went public and were acquired by Philips. Um, uh, in between uh, working with deep, deep dive on this company there, I was an EIR at IVP and Canon. Also helped at Johnson & Johnson start the steroid division, which was sold recently for a couple of billion dollars there, which is a whole new way of doing sterilization in the operating room. So what I really like, and we'll talk more about how do you scale up big companies in health tech, is really creating a new category there and building a business model to defend it. Uh, I was a founder and CEO of a company called Medpool during the dot com. So I went all the way to the sky and back down like everybody else. So, and so I got I got all the burns and, and scars like a lot of entrepreneurs have. So um, so really the big difference is if you think about medtech is medtech is really a product risk going after an existing market. It's all about does it work and does it go and the FDA agrees with you. In health tech, it's all about using existing off-the-shelf technology in a new ways and creating a new market or disrupting an old market there. And so, and most people didn't understand how that works. So I started a conference, uh, I think in 2010, called the Health Tech Conference, which I did for five years and quickly discovered that conference business is not that much fun. Uh, and we're really trying to educate and bring the 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 the, the buyers, which was providers was the first year. At the second year, we added the payers. The third year, we added pharma and, and, and then some of the large employers to say, well, what do they need? You know, I, I really believe you have to focus on the admit need. And that's how you can build big companies. And we'll talk more about that. Oh, I mean, I spare time during COVID. Uh, I've been doing updates, video update on YouTube under the name A-N-N-E. Insights. So, so if you have any issues or long COVID and all that, check it out. I take basically articles that were published in JAMA and Nature and serious article, serious magazines and translate in plain English. What does that mean? That's great. Thank you. Um, so now we'll, we'll jump into just talking about uh, news, news in the industry, things that are going on. Um, so moving on to trade journals and reports, I think the, the biggest thing that's happened since last week is that Rock Health came out with their, you know, often highly expected digital health funding report. This one for the first quarter. We just entered the second quarter, um, and they found uh, an uptick in funding to 3.4 billion dollars last quarter. I have to say that was unexpected to have an uptick, uh, and it's good news. Um, and they pointed out that this includes six mega deals worth 100 million dollars or more. Um, and this is up from 2.7 billion in the prior quarter, um, which in turn funding has been 
at levels of half or maybe even below half what they were during the boom year of 2021. And that is what people are concerned about is that funding is down and funding may be going for safer companies in some cases. Um, so, um, uh, and then Rock Health also, they pointed out that um, that this step up in funding to them does not sig signal a return to boom times. And that's because of the, the it includes mega deals. So those mega deals um, are Monogram Health, which is in kidney care, Shift Key, which is in staffing, Paradigm, which is, in, which is a clinical trial platform, and raised $402 million, for example. Um, there were no IPOs. Uh, the IPO window is, is closed and has been closed for about six quarters. Um, and they also pointed out that publicly traded digital health companies are at about 50% below the start of 2021. Um, so things are still looking, you know, pretty depressed. Uh, and um, I saw an interesting discussion online with Skip Fleshman, uh, who's, a, who's a VC in the Bay Area, uh, and he was pointing out that these companies, in, in his mind, they aren't really digital health companies. They they fall under the way that Rock Health, um, you know, uh, uh, categorizes companies, but they aren't classic digital health companies. Most of them, um, and they their funding was not largely coming from classic digital health VCs. And so it's actually, the, the, the situation is more conservative than it looks to say we had a step up to $3.4 billion. Um, so, and I think I would agree with, uh, with Skip Fleshman's characterization that, um, that these companies are not classic digital health companies. You know, the, the staffing company, Shift Key, for example, it has an IT component, but it's also you know, a pretty clearly a staffing company to it. Uh, so, so you could, you could count it in, you could count it out. Um, so that that's our update. But it's um, you know, so um, it's it's good news that things are not getting worse. Um, but it's also not a not a cause to celebrate. Not a signal that we're returning to um, the the sort of the uh, the glory days of 2021. So, and any did you take a look at the report? Any yeah, any yeah, reactions? I took a look. At yeah, I took a look at the report, and I totally agree that these are a little bit misleading, not not in a, not in an intentional way, but I, I think these mega deals there are totally skewing the averages. And I think in reality, what I see, at least at the seed Series A stage, is extremely difficult to get fresh new money to price a deal. And and so so I, I think the market is going back to where it was in 2018 and 2019. So I don't think it's a correction from a normal market. I think there was an anomaly. Uh, in 2021, that was the Wild West. I mean, it was absolutely, you know, kind of what we do in America. We go from one extreme to the other all the time. So as far as I'm concerned, when I see the activity there, there is, there is, you know, a, a reassessment of reality about what's the real value of the company, what's the milestone, what's the true risk. All of that is happening. It will continue to happen. There was an interesting report that just came out on the health tech nerds or something like that, that half the company need to raise money. And, and everybody did extension last year and, and bridges, and now we're running out of bridges after bridges. And so people are going to have to face the fact that this could be a consolidation, which is what happened during the dot-com, uh, or they have to do down runs because the valuation during 2021 was too high. Yeah, thank you. And I also saw that Health Tech Nerds report. So two reports for our audience that you might want to check out, uh, Rock Health and, and Health Tech Nerds. Um, so, uh, so, so uh, thank you, Anne. Um, so next, an, an intriguing product announcement. I think we'll see a lot more of these. So Microsoft has acquired Nuance a while back, and Nuance does a lot of workflow automation in a hospital context for, 
physicians and for other clinicians, uh, and they have both artificial intelligence and also natural language processing uh, for workflow automation. And they just made a product announcement that um, that they are going to have a clinician note-taking tool using GPT-4. So this is really interesting. I think we're going to see a lot more um, product announcements. Of course, Microsoft is literally the company that has partnered with OpenAI, so they've been had the ability to tinker with this for months and months. I'm hearing we're, we're going to see a OpenAI app store um, where where companies like Expedia and others can and build on top of the large language model of, of OpenAI, like GPT-4. Um, and I think we'll see a lot of healthcare companies choose to jump in here. Um, I think this will be a, a good thing, all in all, but AI has been a, a buzzword in digital health for 10 years, and it'll be intriguing to see what role GPT-4 plays in this. So for example, you could see existing companies that invested in their own AI um, they they could find that 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 prior investment becomes a deadweight loss, and they want to switch to GPT-4 or something. And you could also see an opening here for other companies that were missing AI to suddenly add AI very easily um, because of the because um, OpenAI has built this better large language model AI that they're willing to partner with everyone. Um, so, Anne, do you have any, any thoughts on, um, on Microsoft and Nuance and this announcement and, and other similar announcements? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, there's interesting tidbits of news which may not have made the, the, the CNN ties, but in Belgium, there was a patient there who was clearly in the depressed mode, and he did a GPT-4, and he killed himself based on the recommendation of GPT-4 uh, because he convinced himself that to, to basically help the planet with carbon footprint, that was one of the best ways to basically improve planet and so so i think we have to really be careful in healthcare we're delivering services to people who are vulnerable there are patients or they have mental health issue there and i think those platforms are not really designed uh for healthcare services so we have to see how how this gets gets deployed so i think and, and on the other problem with ai i think if you have a product that's clinically regulated by the fda the fda you know really has pretty high standards to make sure that their type of recommendation is predictable, reliable, and repeatable. And I'm not sure how that's going to work with GPT-4. So I think, I mean, GPT-4 is a great tool for other application. I think it needs a little bit more work on the healthcare services side. Yeah, that, uh, that's a really good point. And I've used um, the GPT tools uh, a bit, and I've definitely come up with wrong answers sometimes. And you know, intriguingly, um, the world of healthcare d does not tolerate wrong answers well, um, and so you know I think I think the, this large language model, which doesn't have a lot of structure around it, doesn't have a lot of fact checking around it, doesn't have a lot of responsibility for data around it. Uh, you know it, we're we're all sitting around intrigued by what it can do, but there may be places where it, it can't be used in healthcare because of the small chance that it will be wrong. Um, and um, I'll also throw in there that some people have pointed out the story about the suicide is really tragic. Some people have pointed out that the way that this is rolling out, the way that large language models are rolling out, um, seems kind of cleverly designed from a liability perspective, which is that Google may have had an ability to be the first with large language models. They didn't take it. If they made mistakes in healthcare or other areas or liability for copying the web and using it or liability for someone using their product and committing suicide, 
Google would, would, would suffer brand damage and liability, but instead the company that did this was OpenAI, which is a, a young nonprofit, um, did this and is sort of taking an approach of um, ask, do it and then ask for forgiveness later rather than asking for permission in advance. So that's an, an interesting sort of, um, like we call it liability arbitrage, uh, where the risk taker is a small nonprofit. Yeah, but at the end, we know where it came from. <laughs> so, so we'll see. Microsoft or, uh, yeah, I, I think you're going to get the regulatory uh, getting involved in some form or shape, you know, as, as soon as there is with patient interactions there, especially if we're trying to use that to collect data, which I think we should uh, use better tools. The question is that, is this mature and is there enough safety rails, guardrails there to make sure that we don't do something that's harmful? And then other, other trade news, we have wealth. Um, the CEO, Matt Loper, raised a $20 million Series B funding. So this is great. You know, if you cycle back six quarters ago, we had um, we had more than five of these sort of announcements per day, practically, it felt like. Um, so wealth offers small financial rewards for completing health-related tasks. And they were funded by Signal Fire, that was probably Chris Farmer there, um, also by um, Frank Williams, who's the former Evelyn CEO and a prominent angel. Glad to see him staying involved in digital health. Um, the Social Entrepreneurs Fund, uh, VD Venture, Yabeo, and the Partnership Fund for New York City. So I'm, just, I'm mentioning this. This is um, this is not, to my mind, this is a somewhat unusual syndicate. I, mean, I, I, I don't see the usual digital health venture names I'm used to in this syndicate. Uh, and you know, I don't know the, the the background behind this, but we're seeing a lot of these. We're seeing the mainstream venture funds, you know, being less active, and we're seeing people who actually pull off a fundraise, um, often having, you know, uh, syndicates that don't include the the, the the most prominent digital venture funds. And what, what do you make of that? Well, I, mean, I think right now everybody is, 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 you know, going to higher ground, as we call it. You know, there's a lot of concerns there. So, and the private equity, you know, and the tourist investor from the tech side have kind of left the space. So, uh, you know, people who have a good product and a good track record are finding what's called a uh, new type of VCs, like Evelyn Health CEO, Frank Williams, you know, he's a he's an old timer in the space there. So they're basically being creative in where the money is coming from as opposed to traditional venture capital. Uh, I think it was more on the strength that the product, you know, had a good value proposition there. And they've probably initial valuation. They may have got, you know, uh, less price sensitive valuation with those type of syndicates. That's great, thanks. So next I'm gonna look into the future for catalysts. So catalysts, these are things that we look for. The catalyst is the resolution of an uncertainty and what can we see in the future that we're looking at that would be catalysts in our market. And I think that the, the first is everyone is kind of waiting for the Fed to say that it's going to stop raising rates. Um, I've heard this repeatedly. Um, and so we had the Fed the other week raised rates by 25 basis points and then said that it would likely no, not need to raise rates for much longer. So it's not clear what exactly that means. The market didn't, didn't react. The market should have reacted positively if that was definitive, but it wasn't definitive. And the market reacted pretty neutrally to that. Um, but I, I think we could see, you know, a month or two or three go by and the Fed raise rates 25 basis points and then announce that it is stopping raising rates. 
And that is actually the most significant catalyst. We could see VCs saying that the, the uncertainty has been resolved and they can price deals now, and we could see VCs hop back in. And that would be great if this picked up you know, before, um, before summer, uh, which, which I think it could. So that's the catalyst that we're looking for. Um, also, with rate raises and a possible recession, we could see the NASDAQ pull in. We're also waiting for the NASDAQ to pull in. If the NASDAQ pulls in, that, that means that we would see valuation levels having found the bottom, and that means that VCs can price deals again and jump in again. Um, another catalyst we're looking for, a positive catalyst, uh, would be if there's going to be successful tech IPOs coming up. So the IPO window is currently closed for tech and digital health, and we may see um, we may see Instacart go public, and we may see uh, ARM go public. And if those go public and trade up and stay up and are successful for the buy side investors who get into those IPOs, uh, then, then, then the IPO window could open up and we could see a lot of tech companies and also some digital health companies IPO. And that's good for a number of reasons. And that usually would coincide with some NASDAQ lift as well. Uh, so and it could also lead to some further consolidation as companies go public and have a currency they can use to make, to make acquisitions. So these are some of the syndicates and some of the, you know, so things are, we're in sort of a, you know, a relative um, winter for digital health right now. And these are some of the, um, the uh, catalysts we're looking for to signal spring in digital health. So Anne, any, any thoughts and any, any catalysts you are looking at? Yeah, maybe I'm more cynical than you are because I've gone through enough cycles there. My experience is the venture industry very often move as a herd. And there's usually a six-month lag before the market starts recovering, before the VC starts getting back and tricking down from late stage all the way back to earlier stage. Right now, what we're seeing is the reverse effect, which is that they're looking at their portfolio and they're dealing with down round extension and all of that. So psychologically, I mean, they'll be traumatized right now uh, because they're facing, you know, you know, kind of decrease in valuation in their portfolio uh, in, in a, on a large scale. So I think people are still busy working their portfolio as opposed to do a new deal. I mean, the problem is that people are not doing new deals, which creates the problem with the portfolio being exhausted with the insiders having to do bridges after bridges and then unfortunately dealing with the reality that they run out of cash. So I, I think it's, it's going to be uglier in 2023, even if the market in six months starts slowly coming back up. So I think we're still dealing with 12 months of pain and suffering at least. Not to be negative. <laughs> so that, that's it. that's actually a helpful framework and contrast to, you know, to, to the way that I was framing things. So thank you. Um, so next, uh, a little bit about macro. Um, so we talked about um, that the Fed will likely raise rates further and then announce that it is stopping raising rates, and that's something that we're looking for. And if the Fed announces it's stopping raising rates, that Raising rates causes the NASDAQ to pull in, announcing that stopping raising rates could cause lift in the NASDAQ, which would be a good thing that we're looking for. Um, and then um, we may be going into a recession. Fidelity is saying that we're at the end of an expansionary period and that a 12-month recession is next, but we're not in it yet. Um, Jason Calacanis of uh, the All In podcast is calling a, a, a Fed-created recession beginning now. Um, and uh, so uh, we also have um, continued banking crisis, and we have OPEC doing a surprise um, 
cuts in oil production in anticipation of a recession, um, which is inflationary. Um, uh, so any thoughts on the macro outlook and how it affects uh, the environment for digital health funding and digital health? Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing that we haven't fully um, uh, realized yet is when the Silicon Valley Bank failure happened, it took so many people by surprise that we're still digesting the consequences. The first one, psychologically, nobody thought that their money in the bank was unsafe. That includes angel investors all the way to VCs. And if you remember, the first thing they did is that they took the money out of the VC fund. Then they told their CEO to take their money out. Uh, and But one of the things we haven't fully accomplished is Silicon Valley Bank was giving a lot of venture debt. Venture debt, when you had two big VCs or several big name VCs there, you could get for every $3 of venture, of venture investment, you could get an extra dollar of venture debt. So if you raise $15 million, Silicon Valley Bank was willing to give you $5 million loans. That is going to disappear at the time where everybody's desperate to kind of get venture debt since the price were under, under pressure. So we're going to see a decrease in venture debt, I think, uh, at least in the short term, because most of them were coming from smaller regional banks like Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, the other thing that I'm seeing is that uh, the, the, the huge drop in funding is D's and the E in the late stage there. But the biggest gap is that the new A Series A is the old B. In other words, the bar has gone up from first, you know, showing you have a product and getting a few people to use it. And then maybe you could get your Series A during the, 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 wild, the wild West of 2021. And ISIS says, no, show me traction, show me metrics, show me cost of acquisition, you know, give me the numbers there. And so people are having a hard time getting to that new bar of the, the of the Series Bs. And so as a result of that, we stand to see predatory terms coming back. And the predatory terms is not only a down run, uh, that's easy to comprehend, but all this very creative, what's called pay to play. Pay to play is that if you don't put another 15% of your money, we convert you back into common, or we basically put two and a half X of, of uh, liquidation preference ahead of you. All these clever legal things there, which is the new money basically take all the value. Uh, that the prior investors uh, were in there. And so typically when that happens, that happened during the dot-com, that happened in 2008, and that happened in the medtech uh, meltdown that we had 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, the, then people figure out that they can make money by by hunting for companies who are under pressure just because of by timing and just be predatory in the terms that they give. So as we start seeing that type of behavior you now in the uh, around here and, and across the country, honestly. So I think that's worrisome because when you have when you're into that psychology, it's hard to go back to let's focus on building values and long-term big businesses. That, that's great, thank you. Um, so next, moving on a little bit to valuation, funding levels, private market activities. So I I talked a lot last week about valuation levels, um, and for this week, I would just add that you know we continue to see relatively slow levels of private market um, uh, investment uh, and also relatively low le levels of acquisitions, although I, we, I do think acquisitions will pick up. Um, and part of the reason is that uh, when you is that um, when you look at digital health has always had less consolidated activity than other comparable areas like B2B SaaS, for example. And part of the reason was that digital health companies had such high valuation that consolidators were just waiting. Well, now we're about to see valuations come down. And that means that there's two kinds of consolidators. There's mid-tier mid and large-tier consolidators. And mid-tier is like a Teladoc. Um, they may make some moves. I don't expect a large amount of moves, but they may make some moves. 
um, uh, and they often don't have a big pile of cash, and they're close to earnings negative themselves, and they're not favored to do earnings negative deals uh, in this environment. But they may do they may make some strategic positions. Then there's the large tier consolidators. That's like Oracle. They do have a big pile of cash, which means that they can make enough easily make an acquisition um, without getting permission from investors. Um, and uh, and so they they may be more more active once they see prices come down uh, to a large tier company. The target really has to be big for it to make a difference to them. Like Microsoft has to buy or has to buy Nuance or Oracle has to buy um, Cerner uh, for it to make a difference to their um, to their revenue. So, um, any thoughts on uh, uh, on, uh, on on these related topics, Sam? Yeah, I think there were two reports, uh, Gallant this morning and Health Tech Nurse showed that around half the companies are running out of money in the next 12 months. And so the challenge they're facing there is that uh, very often they wait for a white nine, you know, to basically keep the valuation or they end up being sold for for their assets there. And so there's usually two buyers, like you're saying. Most of the M&A last year in digital health were bigger telehealth, digital health company buying smaller ones. The question is, what do you get for that? During the dot-com, we had the dog, the big dog eating the small dog, but at the end, they all end up being dogs with no value in their stock. So you have to make sure it's a real sale, and you don't end up with the uh, phantom stock into a, or junior stock into another company that's private that's also struggling there because all those companies, they need you know cash to, because they all have negative cash flows right now. So I think I, think I see the very large one, the, the Oracle and all of that, only buying you know, very big entity, like one medical type, like Amazon did, just because they're, they're such a high footprint. But the majority of the digital company we're looking for funding are smaller size, and they cannot get the attention of these big buyers. And I think that's where you're going to get consolidation in the, by the middle sector, trying to get big enough to be acquired by the bigger guys. It's like the, the remember the, the Pac-Man strategy in the old days. Mm-hmm. I'm showing my age here. Um, that's that's great. Thank you. Um, and uh, so, um, you know, just to so to, to summarize, you know, any any other thoughts on um, uh, on any on reports that have come out uh, or any other trends? Yeah, there was a very interesting report this morning that Gallon Gross uh, you know, presented there, and I think you can get their their reports on their website there on the adoption by a large healthcare system uh, of digital health company. And it was interesting that the largest health system, the top 10, have only 13 deals with the digital health company, where the 10 most active company, which may not be the largest one, were up to 27. The big area that everybody was focusing is on, on, on technology that were disease agnostic, i.e. had a high footprint and to be deployed there. Uh, one of the problems is that they all want clinical evidence. These are healthcare systems. That's the way they operate. You know, they, they do the same thing for medical device. And that's, for example, is really hard for mental health. So it has been a barrier for some people to convince this large healthcare system that they are clinically reliable, you know, and, and all of that. So that's why you see uh, as a, lot of the, a lot of the deployment where in diagnosis, that was kind of the biggest area there that they used this for oncology and women health. And that was ahead of treatment there. And then wellness, that was interesting. That was a very small number. And, and that was only for their own employees, for the productivity of the nursing staff, but not necessarily for their patients. So it was an interesting report. It's worth looking at. Great. Thank you. Um, so now moving on to conferences. Um, 
So I think for the digital health leader, um, should they be thinking about going to Hims? So I'll do a little bit of a review on him. Hims is coming up April 17th, 21 in Chicago. Um, it's a relatively expensive ticket. Uh, it, uh, Hims is used to be all about the hospital CIO and their purchases of EMRs and decision uh, clinical support tools uh, and uh, other software that is sold to the hospital CIO. In the last three or four years, they've tried to expand beyond that and be more about innovation in healthcare. Um, and, uh, you know, should you go, uh, well, uh, if you went to, um, to Vive recently, I think you probably don't need to go to him um, because their direct competitor conference is focused on the same thing. Um, uh, if you if you sell into the hospital CIO, uh, this could be a good conference to go to. I don't think it's good if you sell into other budgets like the employer budget or the pharma tech budget, for example. Um, and you know, I've I've heard more recently that Hims is a bit boring, um, and also that the senior decision makers don't actually go themselves. Um, but this will be Hims happening for the first time since the national. A COVID emergency is over. So it'll be interesting to see if senior decision makers who buy software actually attend and what people think of it. It'll almost certainly be a lot smaller than in the past. It was enormous in the past. Um, so, Anne, what do you think? Should the, should the digital health leader who sells into hospitals go to things this year? Yeah, it's a good question there. I've been going for him for like 30 or 40 years and the CIOs and it was really the back end. You had to interface with them. So you had to talk to them, but they are not the decision maker in, in, in deploying this digital health solution. Like I mentioned earlier, most of the application is diagnostic. So it's all clinical. So your champion uh, is going to be, uh, is not going to be at him's. Uh, now, the, the, see, if you have to get a lot of interface, it's not as difficult as it used to be. I mean, there's some, a lot of new tools and, and new software platforms. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure it's that essential there. I, I think if you're limited in your resource there, uh, I would follow uh, the, the, the conferences where the decision makers are, depending on the area you're in, the oncology, femtech, you know, uh, all those guys. The, the CIOs are not the decision maker. They're the blockers. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. And then personal notices. So uh, I'm in New York this week, week of April 4th. Uh, and um, later today at 5.30, I'm hosting a drinks night um, in the lobby of the Hyatt Grand Central. Um, uh, and uh, let's see. Um, and then tomorrow, I'm in Philadelphia. And I'm hosting a drinks night at the Hyatt uh, Central downtown Philadelphia um, tomorrow night, Thursday night. Um, and then... Um, next week, uh, my show will be on selling into the big budgets in healthcare on Wednesday, April 12th at 4 p.m. Uh, and then on Thursday next week, uh, I'll have a Boston Digital Health Drinks Night. So I hope people can attend. You can check out stephenwardell.eventbrite.com to register for these events. Um, those are just some personal appearances. Anne, are you making any, any personal appearances in the, in the next week or so? Yeah, I mean, if you're in the Bay Area there, in San Francisco Bay Area there, uh, I'm going to be hosting 11 artists at my house. I'm an artist in my spare time under adogaze.com. And that's going to be the weekend of May 13 and 14. So please come by and drop by, and that'd be kind of fun to see you. Yeah, that's the SVUS Open Heart Studio. That's great. Um, so um, now we're going to move on to the topics that we, um, you know, that we have for today. And so 
um, uh, Anne, can you just uh, open up uh, and talk about you know, the topics of today, which is building a scalable health tech company? Yeah, uh, uh, thank you for asking that question. Uh, the first question to ask yourself, are you doing something different or just something that's better? And when I see a lot of the company are focusing on being a, an, an improvement, going after an existing market, so you have to deal with competition, why are you better and all that? I personally think that entrepreneurs, if they're going to spend five years of their life building a company with a lot of pain and suffering getting there, really need to focus about, am I creating a new market category? I mean, like, you know, like the Uber, the iPhone. In my case, I got lucky that I was involved with several of those, like Pixis and VisiQ and the first eczema laser for eye correction, all of that. So the question is always asking yourself, what's the unmet need that I'm solving? What's the pain point I'm solving? Number two, are they aware it's a big pain point? Are they aware it's an urgent pain point to fix? Then when you really do your homework on, on the pain point there, you know, how am I going to basically define this new category there? It's not necessarily a product feature. It is a value to that customer. Uh, so, for example, to give you an idea, when, when VisiQ came, uh, came in there, they said, okay, we're going to monitor the patient in the ICU to decrease the mortality rate uh, from 30% to 10 15% there, which was a big, big, big view there. We're going to do that by having an oversight like the air traffic controller. So they took a concept from a different industry, which is I'm not flying the plane, but I make sure the plane doesn't crash, and they apply this to healthcare. Uh, Pixis and Omnicell, we took the concept of the ATM of banking, which is remote cash management, and the difference is that we put drugs and narcotics in there, and then we, we use these cabinets there in the hospital setting there, and that's a multi-billion dollar industry that did not exist before. And I'm making, I'm making this point there because if you focus on the pain point, then it becomes more and more obvious what the category that you're creating. Uh, if you become the market leader, you can build barrier of entry on the business models and the branding and the fact that people trust you with a solution as opposed to somebody who sells a better widget. So, so, so the first thing is to say, make sure you understand what is the pain point you solve? Not the technology, but the pain point. The other thing to be really careful of is that the early adopters may be very different than the larger part of the market. So a lot of the people, they start getting their first prototype with an academic center, and these people all want more and more features. That may not be adequate for the rest of the market. They want something that's affordable with a good ROI. So we're really having a good understanding about what are the different market segments, what do they want, and, and, and the difference between early adopters and large market and doing the clinical trials that you're doing, not only for FDA and, and validation for the early adopters, but more importantly, getting the data you need for the more skeptical larger healthcare system. You know, it used to be in medical devices, you go to the KOLs, which were in academic, and then they publish and they say everybody has to use this new medical device. In health tech, it's different. The big market is this large consolidated healthcare system. And so for them, their criteria are very different than the Stanford or Mass General. So understanding the roadmap on how you're going to prove that you're facing a pain point is critical. Uh, the other area that I think is important that people make mistakes is that, is, you know, healthcare is complicated. There's multiple stakeholders that have conflict with each other. The user may be a patient. The person giving it to the patient may be a nurse. The prescriber may be a doctor there. And then somebody else is paying it, and that could be other households or a payer. So understanding value proposition for each of them is essential there. And that's where I see a lot of people are really having a problem scaling up because they focus on getting the latest features on the product there. They usually have one or two champions and they cannot scale up because the decision doesn't go from the key opinion leader, which is the first people they sell to, but the people who are basically running the budget, which is what do you do for me and how do I know that I'm saving money here, you know, if you're charging me more money. So I think having the business models become essential. 
The other thing I see that people making mistakes is that the first, the seed series A is learning how to sell. And, and really, when people start coming for the Series B there, they want a cookie cutter on how to scale up. What I mean by that is understanding what's the selling process. Is it direct sales? Or do I have to basically get partnership there? How do I train my partnership? Do I have to handhold the partners so they can bring me the orders and I still have to support them? Who is going to do the customer service? What is the whole workflow in getting that customers engage and retain? Uh, I mean, I mean, so so for, for example, I was talking to somebody from Peer Therapeutics. This is public knowledge that they had like thirty thousand uh, prescription done. Only half of them were being dispensed, so only fifteen thousand, and half of those were being paid for. So really understanding what is the value proposition, how you're going to acquire, and how do you make sure you get paid for it, uh, you know, is is much more complicated than just developing the software and the app there. So the other big thing is that there's different key uh, person that can pay. I call this the five P's. That's the payers, the providers, the patients, pharma, any employers. They all have different business models. And when I see some startup, they say, we're going to go after all the market. It's impossible to go after multiple markets. I always joke as a rule of thumb that at Nelco, we spent $2 million in the 1980s to build a product and $20 million in creating the market and become the market leader. The ratio is 10 to 1 of the amount of money that you spend in developing the technology and the amount of money to basically create the market and establishing yourself as a leader. So when you talk to the payer, you know, uh, they want to minimize their cost. They have only one thing, you know, can you save me money? And and I, I hope some of you listeners know the difference between code coverage and pricing. Getting a code doesn't mean you get paid. You need to make sure that each of the health plan is going to provide a coverage and more importantly, that they pay for it. And I think that's the problem that Peer Therapeutic was, is having there is that they finally got the code, and I took multiple years, but they're having a hard time getting the coverage, which is the health plan is willing to pay for it, and getting an amount of money uh, that basically pay for the value of the services they provide. And so I'm part of the AdvaMed uh, venture uh, group there, and they did a, a, AdvaMed is an advocate for the medical device and some of the digital health company there with the Congress. And they did a survey of their members, which is thousands of companies, and it shows that it takes three to five years to get a brand new code. So Sunset would say, I'm going to develop a new product. I'm going to get a new code. Good luck. I mean, that is another five years of hard burn rate there. Uh, some people have done it, but they knew what they were doing. Cala Health was successful, but they decided this is a product that's being used for Parkinson, and it basically compensates for some of the tremors you have in your hand. And they were able to get a new HICPI code, which is they were a DME, durable medical equipment there. But that took five years, and they work on this from the beginning. So you have to get these leaders in this company there understanding that is not just showing the product works, but showing that you have a business model that's scalable. So I take a quick pause there and we can go into the providers, some of the other ones. Um, the payers also uh, is, is in, uh, before I finish on the payers, is Medicare Advantage is the early adopters. They've been the best ones for digital health, but here's the bad news. CMS has proposed to make some changes that will decrease the payment they make to the Medicare Advantage plan. And the big worry is the first cut, if that happens, it's going to be a lot of digital health companies that do preventions and try to save money as opposed to people treat. Sorry, uh, Stephen. That's great. Thank you. So you touched on something that matters a lot to, um, to young, young digital health leaders of, of young companies, and that is, is how many um, buyers can they make products for? How many sales channels can they go down at the same time? Uh, and you mentioned, you know, you can... 
you often are, are you're in an indication, let's say the indication is type 2 diabetes, you have some IP, and then you could sell this product direct to the patient, so that would be like Dario, or you could sell it to the employer, that would be like Livongo, or you could sell it to the, to the payer, that would be like Omada, um, or you could sell it to the, to the prescriber, that would be, um, you know, that, so there's models that do that. Um, Etc. Uh, and so the uh, and so CEOs uh, are always trying to think: Do I do all of them or just one of them? And and each has its problems. And so if you go down just one and you run into a roadblock, you feel like you should have gone down two because then you could pivot to the other. So back in the 2020 to 21 timeframe, I heard a number of people were saying that at the level of the CEO, you could probably go down two pathways at the same time, but you should not go down more than two. So you could sell to the employer and you could sell to the payer. That's like Livongo initially sold to the employer, but then also sold to the payer. And those are pretty close budgets and the same product could be sold to each one. Um, but, but now we're actually in a leaner time than the 2020-21 timeframe. And so what do you think of that advice at that time? And what do you think of that advice today? And by the way, there was also a joke, which was that you would visit the website of a company that had raised, of a young company that had raised $5 million for its product, and you would see that it was saying that, yes, we sell to the employer and the payer and the government and, and the member and the prescriber. Um, and that was actually a way to know that the company had no hit products and was in trouble, was to say, if it sold to more than if it claimed to sell on more than three channels, um, having only raised a small amount of money. Um, but what do you think of that advice about two as a maximum from the 2020 to 2021 timeframe? And what, and what do you think is the best advice today? Well, I mean, you know, we always say, uh, you know, focus, 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 focus is the key to success in a startup there because you have more tasks that you have the time and the resource for. So you have to kind of pick the one that can get you to move the best. So I kind of agree. You cannot go and, and do a fire sale to say, here, this great product. Please, please, you know, buy it from me. And you talk to five different markets with five different needs. I think the Omada Health is an interesting story because when they started, this was a nascent industry there. So they went with the earliest adopter. At the time, these were the employers. And the employers have a different time horizon. And employers keep their employees on the average five years. And, and, and their ROIs calculate not only on the medical costs, but also retention, hiring them, productivity and all of that. So they had, they're much more, f more friendly in defining the key metrics of success. So they went in there and they had, they went at risk. They say, okay, we're going to do uh, 16 weeks of treatment. I think it was at the time. And, and you pay me a little bit there upfront there, but if I hit a certain metrics, which is a certain amount of weight that was being lost by a pre-diabetic person there, you know, you pay me X. And so they, they changed the model to say, we're not going to collect data for three years and then try to convince you, we'll go at risk. And so the employers who were having problem attracting and retaining employees, this was a, a tight uh, labor market at the time, they decided to basically do that. Then they collect the data from the employers and then they start having the employers demanding this from their pay health plan. So they went from the wellness part of the budget, which is always very dangerous because everybody's trying to fight for that, to the medical claim part of business, which is 90% of the employer budget there. And they did that because they showed that it worked and it had an impact in decreasing medical cost. And so as a result of that, they were able to get to the benefit broker, 
And the benefit brokers start putting pressure on the payers, and then they became a business model that evolved into having the health plan being this as a medical claim. And so they were very successful at, in some way, creating that new category and creating the market. We're using the employer's data because they, they were easier to pay you for to collect the data and doing the two years data sets that the, the payers require to basically not be part of a medical claim. So there's also this navigation about what is the type of data I need for each type of buyers? And then the, the payer are the hardest one because they need a lot of data. Um, we had uh, uh, right now a different situation there because COVID has created this hybrid working environment that there's a lot of mental health issue in the recession. So I think the, and the employers are no longer an early adopters of digital health. They have bigger fish to fry, as we call it. So I think I think that market is much harder. And then, uh, you know, the VP of HRs, they get like 100 submissions a day from digital health companies. So they basically push this all away there. And then they let the, the broker dealer, benefit broker dealers dealing with that or the health plan. So I think that market has changed quite a bit there. Um, and so, so I think right now the, the, the Medicare Advantage plan are probably the most open on the payer side as opposed to the traditional Medicare or, or the health plan. Uh, but it's a very long road because it's such a fragmented market there. The providers is another market, which is the hospitals or the clinics. Uh, but typically what they want is decrease my cost, you know, because the average length of stays in the hospitals is four and a half days. It's really hard to increase revenue. You may up create maybe some of the DRG codes, but most of the time it's saving money there. And what people don't understand is fee-for-service is still 90% of the provider business models. So if you save save a, save, save a visit, that doesn't mean it's necessarily a good thing uh, for the providers. There's a lot of conflict of interest there. And then for that market, you need CPT codes. So you have to keep in mind that if the physicians use your product or review the data of your product there, they need to get paid for their time. And the hospital is paying for your products. has to find a way to make money or, dec- or decrease cost for your product there. So you have really two value propositions, both on the physician side and then the, the, the person ultimately buying it. And there's one thing about the providers. If you change the workflow, good luck. I mean, that's extremely difficult. Uh, in, in VZQ, we took us two-year selling cycle there despite the fact we had amazing data that was repeated multiple times. It was saving lives and it was saving money and improved patient satisfaction. And yet you're changing the, the nurses and physician workflow is very difficult. So really understanding what is the impact of where you fit in the existing world. And then we can talk about the patients. I mean, uh, initially the digital health started with Fitbit going crazy there before Apple basically wiped out everybody. Um, and, and the patients are very often the early first adopters. Scaling up direct-to-consumer is very difficult. Most VCs won't touch that anymore because uh, they really have been burned. And so people have to be creative in doing partnership as a B2B to C or B2C to B and all of that. And it's all about cost of acquisition versus long-term value. You know, is, you know, are you going to compete against Apple? Is that a friend or a foe? I mean, you know, a lot of people learn this the hard way, you know, including AliveCore, if you remember, who work with Apple to develop an EKG devices there. And then Apple developed their own competing products there. And then they have these nasty lawsuits on IP. So there's a lot of the market has changed quite a bit in the last 10 years. And so the models to go to market three years ago is different than it is today and it's different than it was 10 years ago. So I, I wish I had easier easier answer there. Well, the good news is pharma. If you sell anything to pharma to decrease the clinical trial cost, you're golden if you can show that it works. Stephen, are you still with me? So, or do you, or yeah, depressed so you? <laughs> yeah, very, very interesting. Um, so... 
uh, uh, you know, when selling to patients and consumers, um, is Noom a good model? I hear a lot of people talking about Noom. You know, is that is that kind of the the, the gold plated model for, for selling to patients? Do you think? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, you know, I'm 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 on the board of HBS Northern California there, and we give them a big award. So I I, I basically got a special. And I signed up for Noom last year. They said, how are they so successful? They got 60 million users doing something uh, that like weight loss that, you know, all these other Weight Watchers and all of that have not been successful at. And when you do it, it's really CBT, it's cognitive behavior therapy. I mean, it's not educating you on food and the good food and the bad food. It's all about these little nudges that are psychologically help you, help you get change behavior. And that takes on the average, if you look at brain plasticity, it takes a good 16 weeks to slowly create new pathway so you start changing how you eat and what you do. And they were very successful at doing this, this app there where you basically interact five to 10 minutes a day, a little clip, little video, very snap, 30 seconds, 60 seconds type of interaction there. And it worked. And I think that's where a lot of people have realized that uh, user interactions there and, and behavior modification is the key to anything that has to do with the, phys- with the patient's population. That could be for diabetes, migraines, or or whatever chronic disease management you're trying to do there. So so some of our portfolio company, when they talk to the Medicare Advantage plan, it's about engagement and retention. And not necessarily the cost yet, but can you engage them? Can you get them to even try to change behavior? And can you retain them for a long period of time that the value and the benefit is validated? And that turns out to be an art in itself. That's why you see company like uh, Apple and, and you know coming in there because they know the consumer much better than you know yourself. And you know, over the past few years, there were a number of funds that actually committed to a consumer approach. So most digital health venture funds um, consider consumer to be so different than the business of healthcare that they that they don't invest in consumer centric, um, you know, uh, digital health. But we saw Mayfair and uh, Seven Wire and some other funds intentionally focus on consumer digital health. How has that gone? Is that thriving and, you know, we're going to see more of it uh, or is it too early to say, or how, how do you how think that funds that specialize in consumer digital health are doing? Well, it, de- it depends how you define it. So at the end of the day, healthcare is providing care to a patient. That's how we define that. So you could improve some productivity tool, you know, for the providers, but at the end of the day, the patient has to behave differently. So, 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 so it depends who pays now for that, for that patient. If you try to get the consumer to pay, which is like what the NUMA doing and some of this, this is some of the challenges are. I think a lot of the digital therapeutics and other companies like doing RPM and all of that, they're still dealing with the patient. There is just a question. The patient is not necessarily paying for it. So I think in all cases, digital health end up dealing with the patient as a user, but it's not necessarily the same buyer. So you have to get the patient engaged and retained and having a good experience there in addition to providing a value proposition to somebody else who is paying for it. Does that make sense? So I think I think a lot of these venture funds who are doing this, they have the broad definition, which is it's the patient that's being the user. That doesn't mean it's always the patient paying for it like a consumer, direct to consumer. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, um, so most providers, 90% of providers still being fee for service. I have seen numbers like 80 to 90% and, and you're seeing 90%. Um, you know, this began to change with Obamacare in 2009. 
So that is 14 years ago. Um, and um, why hasn't it moved faster? And what do we need to see? And the opposite of fee for value, the complement is uh, so the, the complement of fee for service is fee for value. And a lot of people would like to see us shift fee for value for a number of reasons because it's a form of reform, but also because fee for value, in theory, likes technology more and skilled labor less. Whereas fee for service likes skilled labor and doesn't like technology, fee for value likes technology and automation and doesn't like skilled labor. And so in 14 years, we've shifted from 100% fee-for-service to 90% fee-for-service. Where is this going? And what I've heard to look for is that CMS will have hard incentives for providers. So CMS will have capitation for providers or, um, you know, or uh, you know, penalties for uh, providers uh, or when you see hard incentives for providers from CMS, that will shift people into fee-for-value. What you've mostly seen is soft incentives like profit sharing, um, which have not moved the needle much. But what, what do you think it will take to move the needle, and, and are we going to go to a greater percent fee-for-value? Yeah, I mean, without getting into the heavy politics there, what happened on, under Obama there, there was this huge momentum to create what's called bundling, which is you take an, an episode of care. So let's assuming you hurt your knee and you need, you need a new implant, you know, that whole period from pre-op to post-op rehab and everything else was one event of care. They had one payment there and then all these different providers, the anesthesiologist, the surgeon, the implant maker, the rehab people all were being paid together. And then they had to figure out how they, how they basically work together as a team. There was a huge momentum to do that. And there was a mandate to basically be effective for a huge chunk of the biggest DRGs, which was HIPs knees, some oncology, and they were really going down, down the top of the urges. And then when the Trump administration came, they stopped all of that. They said, no, no, that's not the way we want to do. We don't want to basically tell how, how to practice medicine. And the challenge with that is that a lot of the hospitals had invested into this technology to be able to collect the data, be able to judge what was the quality of the provide of the services provided, basically split between the different players there, doing comparison and standard deviation, all the things you need to do to do value-based care. And then, and then, you know, we stopped and we went backwards. And so, so I think people, you know, when, when you start jumping and you get hurt, you don't jump the second time. And so I think there's some of that problem there. Uh, CMS right now is really focusing on the fact that over 50% of patients are moving into Medicare Advantage and they believe uh, that Medicare Advantage is making too much money in profits. You know, they have to, uh, they get 20% of, of the margins there of every premiums. And they've they decided they're going to squeeze that. And I think, ironically, it may backfire because it may decrease all this proactive prevention plan that a lot of the digital health companies are doing uh, because that's the first thing that's going to get cut down. So I think we, we have a lot of uncertainty right there. As far as the providers are concerned, there was this accountable care organization that were created. And like you said, they had these really fluffy savings. They had no downside, but maybe some upside, but you knew after the fact who was in your population there. So there was... It was not organized well. So, uh, so yes, you know, value-based care should happen. I, I don't think the government has figured out the formula to make it work. And, and one of the first large healthcare system that went into value-based care like 10, 15, 10 years ago there decided they couldn't make any money and they went back into fee-for-services. So I think we need to find a path that the healthcare system can make money. And a lot of the system right now, I heard they lost a lot of money during COVID because 
uh, all the elective surgery uh, went down drastically there. And then we're all coming out of this emergency payment uh, effective in a month now. And that is going to have an impact there. So I think there's not a huge appetite for the uh, healthcare system to take those risks. I mean, I remember a presentation from uh, Mass Generals and the Harvard Pilgrim uh, system there, and they had bought a group of patients, I think it was like 150,000 from a values-based care system there, and they didn't fully understand or it wasn't fully disclosed the risk profile, and they lost $100 million. And so, so it all goes back to data analysis. Can you rely on the data? Can you basically bid? based on the risk of those population there. And a lot of the healthcare system are just learning how to do that. The payers are much better equipped in looking at risk analysis of populations. That's great, thank you. I think you were gonna move on to pharma next. Yeah, so pharma, pharma is interesting. It's probably the most stable business model right now. And in pharma, uh, if you can show them you can uh, have faster clinical trials, you collect the data uh, be uh, better, uh, and, and you can also um, uh, not having as many dropout during the enrollment trial. So if you do a 1,000 patients, you have to enroll 1,200 to get to 1,000 data. If you could show all of that by doing virtual clinical care and rolling better and all of that, you're golden. I mean, they're all looking for that because they spend so much money on that. Uh, as far as what we used to call beyond the pill, which is to get a digital health to improve compliance or to disease management, they still have a hard time to see what does that do for them. I mean, they try to help, but you know, it's a much harder value proposition to show uh, from a pure uh, ROI for, for, for the pharma there. Uh, the other big area is increasing compliance. You know, only 50% of the drugs are filled, which is stunning. So you spend all your money there getting a drug approved you have a Salesforce, you know, retailing, detailing the, the, the physicians there, and then only half the prescriptions are being picked up, which ironically is the same amount of peer therapeutics. So that was interesting. And so really improving the, the fill rate and then people getting back their medication, especially chronic medication there, is still a holy grail that we haven't fully figured out there. And then the other area that I've seen a lot of activities is to identify patients earlier. And that could be for certain type of condition there where the drugs could be more effective or if like a funnel there, if you can go a little bit earlier, like five to six months before you normally would have been caught with serious symptoms there, you can start these patients earlier in trial. So there's a lot of efforts there in early vaccination, early diagnostics, uh, you know, to basically uh, go straight to the population there or work with the physicians. Yeah, very interesting. I'm, I'm also hearing, you know, the, uh, uh, the sort of the, the joke is that uh, in the B2B world, um, 12 months is a long sales cycle. Uh, and in digital health, um, pharma and employers have the shortest sales cycle at about 18 months. Um, so, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. Say, I mean, hospitals is 24, 18 to 24 months, if not higher. If you're going to yeah. sell to a Kaiser, that could be three years. So, so you really need, as you're scaling up there, you really need to look at your segments and then, and then, and then target certain accounts based on not that they're the biggest contract you can get, but the earliest contract you can get. Mm -hmm. That's great. And then employers. Oh, so let me just say to our audience. So we're at the top of the hour and, and I'd love for us to keep going uh, a little longer. Do you have time to keep going a little longer? Yeah, I'm fine. Um, so for our audience, if you can only stay for an hour, this is a good juncture to go. Um, but uh, Ann and I are now gonna move over to the bar. And the bar is where we kind of talk about what's really going on in healthcare. 
uh, and uh, so I, I have another 15 minutes or so, um, but bar, and the bar is where we kind of talk about what's really going on in healthcare, uh, and uh, so I, I have another 15 minutes or so, um, but, uh, but this has been great so far. And can you can you jump onto the uh, employer category? Yeah, I mean the employers, as as I mentioned a bit earlier, there. I mean they were the early adopters, like eight, ten years ago. They were the one that basically helped the market get off the ground. But I think right now uh, they're very distracted with the recessions, the hybrid work environment there. For a while, everybody was helping in mental health. Now they don't really know how to pay for that. So, uh, so I think that that market is very difficult, and I think it's not being controlled by the benefit insurance brokers as the market mature. So it's a tougher market to enter helping in mental health now they don't really know how to pay for that so uh, so I think that that market is very difficult and I think it's not being controlled by the benefit insurance brokers as the market mature so it's a tougher market to enter that's great um, and I don't know if you want to open this up in the chat room for people to ask questions yes yeah, so this, this is a good juncture for our audience if you'd like to ask any questions um, uh, so you can jump into the chat room and you can also press the uh, call-in button if you'd like to be a, a caller by voice. I think one of the questions you had asked me before is that how you do the company for the next group of investors. And I think that that's really an excellent question in this environment there because um, the definition of the milestones have changed drastically drastically um and so a lot of the people are spending their time uh, making focusing the energy on the product because companies have been started by technologists what they don't understand the biggest problem in health tech is market validation you know and the business model validation there so you have to really find a way to de-risk the business model there by having early contracts and deploying as fast as you can Uh, Dave, Dave Sidowski was asking a question. So would you please stack rank the players by time to first revenue? You mean the players being the five payers, the the, the, the employers, pharma, and all of that? Can you can you clarify? Rank the players by time to first revenue. You mean the players being the five payers, the the, the, the employers, pharma, and all of that? Can you can you clarify? I don't know, Stephen, if you can see that. He said yes, okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I, I think what it used to be 10 years ago is different than now. Uh, I, I think that right now in this environment there, I think Med Medicare Advantage Plan uh, have learned during, the, during the, the COVID phase that they had all this extra money because there was lower uh, elective surgery there. So they know how to do pilots and all of that, and you can get paid for some of these pilots. It's really important that you define the success metrics uh, from the beginning of what it will take to get a paid contract and to roll out from, let's say, 100,000 population to the million population that they may have in their plan there. So really spending, like the bar is like 5% enrollment because that's as bad as some of these wellness programs are. So if you could get an, an enrollment over 5% there, you could really get their attention. If after three to six months, you can you can still have like 60 to 70% engagement there, then they think you're golden. So I think metrics they are very different that you will have with the hardest market right now is the providers because it's so hard to get into a hospital there and they have all these committees and very long selling cycle if you have capital equipment there that's at least 12 to 18 months just from the cycle 
So uh, there's a hard market there. And then I think depending how good your value proposition is, uh, you know, you may be able to get to the pharma, uh, but you have to validate that you have data there that works. I don't know if that helps, Dave. It's, you know, it's pretty rare market. that that you can sell to all markets. You know, typically you have one or two markets that you know you create value for. Yeah, I'll just add some context there. So, um, uh, for for fifteen years, VCs have been steering digital health companies to go sell to the progressive large employer, uh, and that's been a great place to sell. Um, but uh, that area has become over prospected over time um, and so it's hard to sell a single product as a new company that doesn't already have a relationship and selling and get into those large employers um, also with with hospitals and health systems they're feeling very poor right now and so um, and so they it, it's hard to persuade them to adopt a new clinical decision support tool let's say uh, and the big EMRs are acting as kind of blockers uh, to a certain extent. Uh, a big EMR will see a nice product category. It will say that it's going to build that into its EMR, and then that uh, makes the makes the category unattractive for innovators uh, to be in uh, an area that's not over prospected. And as you as you said, is selling to to biopharma companies. That's actually a really intriguing area um, where and, and they tend to to pay well uh, in general. Um, over on the commercial side in pharma, that that's another good budget to sell into, except that, that brand managers and product managers tend to have high turnover over there. And if you sell to one, it doesn't mean you sell to every brand manager inside the whole of, of the pharma company. You have to sell to each one individually. So that's just some... Yeah, and, some and, and those people on the farm, yes, excellent context. Uh, the pharma managers, they have budget that changes. So if they're launching a new products, they have a very rich budget, but after that, it's maintenance budget. So it's not always, you know, hard to have a long-term sustainable relationship there where clinical trials, like you said, uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, it's easy to save money and, 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 and be effective there. So that's, that's an entry that's much better than traditional brands. Yep, that's right. In, in fact, in fact, last year when the, there was the market correction there, a lot of the biopharma company dropped down the spending they were doing for digital health in the brand area there just because there was so much uncertainty and they were talking about regulation of drug price and everything else there. Where the clinical trials part of the business stay very healthy. That's great. So then uh, we have time for one last question. Um, so who is it easiest to get the pilots in order to pilot agreements in order to get initial data for yourself? Well, I think it depends what you're trying to validate. I mean, if you try to validate like you're clinically regulated by the FDA and you want to show that, you know, that you have a, a placebo control, blah, 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 trials there, then you have to talk with an investigator that typically involves with an academic center there. You may want to get an SBIR grant so they pay for part of the cost and all of these other things like that. That's if you are clinical relevant. Remember what I mentioned earlier in the Galen Growth a report that came out today that the majority of the digital health applications sold to healthcare system there have clinical evidence. And so if you have to create clinical evidence there, you have to work with those players there. Um, if your value proposition is engagement and retention, you have to probably get enough of those patients there, let's say with Medicare Advantage, that you have thousands of patients using the products there showing that it's significant and it's 
predictable and it's across geographics and demographics and whatever else, you know, are the different characteristics of that population there. So, you know, it, it's the, the, the key there is to show your product works uh, in the population they want to pay for. So if you have a health plan, for example, that is targeting uh, the young population and your value proposition is for hips and knees, you know, it's not relevant to them. So on the other hand, you have a Medicare Advantage plan and you're talking about femtech and all of that. So you have to really know your population. Not every health plan is the same. You have to do your homework. That's great. Well, so for, for time reasons, I think we need to, um, uh, to wind down. But thank you so much, uh, Anne. Sure. Uh, thank you for inviting me. And you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk with your host, Steve Wardell. Um, thanks to our guest, Andy Geist, founder and managing director of HealthTech Capital. Um, you'll find a list of upcoming Investor Talk shows at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Stephen Wardell. Um, and to get notice of upcoming Investor Talks, sign up for our MailChimp list. Our next talk is next week. Um, selling to the big budgets on Wednesday, April 12th at 4 p.m. And for our our Massachusetts listeners, I'm holding a, a drinks night the following day, Thursday the 13th from 5.30 to 8.30 at the Liberty Hotel's Bobby Bar. Um, thank you, and this is Steve Wardell signing off. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everybody.